Hey, how you going? Uh, we got Vanessa Casper on this episode, who is the founder and host of the Dose of Support podcast, uh, to come in and talk to us about self-care as a health professional, something that is a hot topic in many, many, many areas at the moment. Uh, things like burnout and the effect, the trauma effect of actually working in healthcare, etc. So we went into that and explored that and came up with a few things that may help you better manage your own self-care when working in a health setting. So let's kick off the intro. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. First off, what is a nurse practitioner? So for that, I have to give a little bit of background. So in the States, most, a lot of nurses are nurse assistants first. So they do a lot of like personal care, like literally helping people brush their teeth and eat their food and like very personal, intimate care. And you can listen to my podcast, episode three, we have a nursing assistant that comes on and explains that work. So I did that for four years to really learn if I liked nursing, like, and I was in college at that time. And so then I went into nursing school and I got my, it was a two year registered nurse degree. And here in the States, that is kind of one of the lower degrees that you can get, but you can start working after just two years in school. And so you take a board exam called the NCLEX and then you're a registered nurse. And so I worked while I obtained my bachelor's degree. And then, so, and there is no difference. There's no new licensure or anything. It was just like a completion of more education. Um, Some people just go straight for the bachelor's degree. And so then, so everyone, I think, for the most part, knows what a registered nurse is, but we work in all facets of healthcare, right? And most of my work was in intensive care. So if anyone knows ICU environments, I was at a level one trauma center, gunshots, stabbings, like the worst things in humanity that you see, drunk driving. Um, I literally, like one of the first times I did CPR, um, she was like maybe 21 and we all had to be like basically in COVID gear, although this was like 10 years ago, like we were literally geared up from head to toe because while we were doing chest compressions, her guts were spewing out of her abdomen. And so like, that's a little like raunchy, I know, but like, like think about like the worst trauma stuff that you would see. And that's what I did for years and years and years. And you know, a lot of the stuff you see in the hospital, I'm sure a lot of your OT listeners can really relate to this. A lot of the stuff that you see is preventable. You know, when people go into heart failure, like that's a lot of time that that's preventable. So, um, 
so all of the primary care stuff that I saw people not getting, um, really inspired me to go back to school. So in the States, a registered nurse can go back for a graduate level training to become an advanced practice registered nurse. And so there's lots of different types of APRNs and I am a nurse practitioner. And so basically I assess, I diagnose, I can interpret testing, I can um, prescribe medications, I can prescribe therapies, I can consult OT, PT. So I can consult all of the specialties around me. And um, I, I do a lot of a lot of education with patients, which is a big difference between what a nurse practitioner and a physician does. I think a lot of good physicians sit there and take the time and and do the education, but nurses are so accustomed to talking to people and being straight with people. And like they have that experience behind them as nurses at the bedside that they really just offer a different approach to someone's health. So Nurse, nurse practitioners work in all facets of healthcare. They independently work. We are not under physicians ever. In fact, um, Supreme Court in the U.S. has said that um, a physician cannot testify on a nursing um, task or a, a nursing scope because we're never in the states. We are. We are managed by nurses and nursing boards. Mm. So I, that's kind of a roundabout way. That's, that was a really long explanation. So if you <laughs> want right. more clarity, no, no, that makes please, sense please more clarity. I'm, I, I have a doctorate degree. I prescribe medications. I diagnose people. I am their primary care provider and I don't work under a physician. So, um, but I do need physicians Like I I even perform minor surgeries, um, like office procedures, but I certainly need my physician colleagues. And so one of the reasons dose of support came up um, is because I noticed that we all work in our little bubbles, in our silos, and we never expand and learn about each other Mm. and what each other can offer. And, And so I'm years into my NP practice and... I felt like this was an opportunity and here I am 10 episodes in. <laughs> I have to ask because uh, that the ICU stuff, the trauma center stuff, just to me, no, that's a big note from me. I could, wouldn't <laughs> have the stomach for it. That's one of the reasons why I'm not a nurse. Uh, and probably one of the other reasons why even within OT that I went into mental health because there's a distinct lack of bodily fluids. Uh, compared to some other other Unless areas. Unless they're being thrown at you. Uh, yeah, but even then, that's yeah. not common. That's 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 a lot rarer than you would see stuff in a trauma center. But uh, why? <laughs> why does that appeal to you? Okay, well, should so, I be worried? <laughs> so, I wanted to be a badass. Okay, I wanted to be the most highly skilled nurse I wanted to, I mean, you and I have talked in the past um, about doing something a thousand percent doing it. And I, I strongly feel even still that when people graduate from nursing school, they need to 
develop their skills and be experts at what they're doing before they move on to the next thing. And so I felt like I needed to go to a place where I could get as much skill and critical thinking and the the training to be at the top of my game and my profession. And, and then I got there and I was like, wow. Um, cause you're not, it's, it's, it's no joke, right? It is really hard. And, um, if any of your listeners are interested in what that story is about, um, and what I've been through even more around that, uh, listen to episode zero of dose of support. But, um, in, in short, I did develop PTSD and I am not ashamed of that. It's really hard to see things and do things and basically torture people at the end of their lives. Um, and it doesn't, it's not necessary in a lot of cases that I I feel like we, you know, we shouldn't be coding a 90 year old man. You know, we should be allowing him to pass on peacefully, but because he's a full code, because his primary care physician never had that talk with him and his family, here we are. And and so I found myself in these situations all the time. And so I became highly skilled. I reached that goal of being at the top of my profession, but then um, it was, it came at a cost. Yeah. Is that, is that a personality trait that you've had like your whole life? Like if there was, if you're playing a sport, I don't know if you play a sport, but if you're playing a sport, you had to be the best. If you were mm-hmm. trying to learn something, you had to be the best. Yeah. Um, and I've been an anxious person my whole life too. And so I think they really go together a lot. I mean, PTSD is partially an anxiety disorder, but um it's interesting because I remember growing up and having fear and having and being anxi- anxious about you know stuff that really doesn't matter, but at the time it really mattered. And I was um, an athlete in high school, and I was I wouldn't say a professional dancer, but I was like semi a competitive dancer, um, jazz, tap, ballet, hip hop, all the things. And so I was very um, competitive in that way too, and. I put a lot of pressure on myself. And so in my nursing career, I I did the same where I, I wanted to be the best and I wanted to do the best things at the best places. And um, a, a, another component of me working in intensive care is some of that work was done very far from my home. So I, I, moved across the United States to a different state and I was a thousand miles from home. And so I didn't have my support network with me. And, um, I had at that time, my boyfriend, who is now my husband, I, I had him and he, I, I mean, I'm not even sure I would be here today without him as my support because it, it was so bad at one point. I, I, it's a, it's a blur even. Um, but I know, I know he was there. I know this is very ethereal sounding, but, (laughs) um, yeah. So I didn't have the support system that you would have if you were living and working 
close to your family or close by your support system. So yeah, I've always been kind of like that. Did, so when you were going through these times, because I I guess what I'm working towards is obviously you now have a podcast that's very much about self-care. When did you sort of make that connection that, wait up, what I'm doing and the, even if you were doing some things for self-care, it just wasn't enough to compensate for the stuff that you were going through. When did you make that connection that something has to change? Like I'm not dealing with this as fast or as well as it's coming in kind of thing. Yeah. um, Well, at that time I knew some of the things that I, that I saw, I, I mean, I had coworkers that would come in after a car accident and then I'd have to, we'd have to take care of them and resuscitate oh, so the co-workers them. Coworkers were in the car accident. Yeah. Oh, like, wow. okay. So like we, we for would be, you knew, yeah. we would be caring for people that we knew Yeah. and because we were the only trauma center nearby. Um, and so people would be helicoptered in and we would know who they are. And you, you, your brain, you know, you have to take care of that person. You go into, into beast mode and you do what you got to do. Um, yeah. And so the whole time I worked that job, I on and off saw a therapist. I was on medication. Um, it did not help that I was working 12 hour night shifts Mm. because when you take medication, you know, certain SSRI type drugs, certain drugs are better taken before you go to bed. But my bedtime was flipped Flipped. because I would go to bed at like 9am and then go to work at, you know, 6pm or, and so I really had a lot of things against me. And so even though I had sought out therapy and I had work friends I could talk to and I um, had been on medication. Um, It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. I don't know when, I don't know when I pulled the trigger. I remember my last day at that particular job. I punched out. I knew it was my last day because I was moving home and I punched out and I cried on the unit in front of everyone. And there's, there's a real culture in intensive care. I don't know if this exists in the OT world, but if you are showing that emotion that you're not handling something, then you're not as good of a nurse. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen that culture in, in other areas i don't know if it is in ot it would only be very specific areas like it's not a global sort of ot thing if anything i think ot's probably share emotions too much not too much but yeah. a, a lot more than other professions because that's especially in mental health i mean that's 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 our jam kind of thing but uh i, I dare say it, it would be specific workplaces rather than like the, an ot culture thing but i've, I've seen have you it. heard of like horizontal violence or lateral violence I've heard the term, but I'm not super familiar with it. So it really is kind of like that hazing that happens or that passive aggressive, um, you better get your shit together. Like a lot of that happens. There's a lot of bullying in nursing. There's a lot of really (laughs) dysfunctional relationships in nursing um, where when I think, I think that when people show emotion, when nurses show emotion, it should be celebrated. I, I think when anyone in healthcare 
shows emotion because it's hard, that needs to be okay. And that needs to be normalized. And it's not. It's seen as a weakness, at least here in the States. No, no, I, I've, I, I've seen very similar within nurses here. Uh, as well, mm-hmm. so I don't think that's a, a just the 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 states kind of issue. I think it happens in a lot of places, and I have I've often wondered. I think I'm sure I've talked about it on this podcast with someone before briefly, but I've often wondered why uh, that would be so prevalent in one profession and not say another profession that you know might be working fairly closely or in similar situations. And the only thing that I could really sort of think of and feel free to chime in if you think I'm even way off the mark, is literally the environment, I guess the the systemic environment that nurses operate in, in that quite often, you know, you guys are doing the, the long shifts, the overnight shifts, whereas a lot of the other professions will just do, they might do a late shift, but it's not an overnight shift, which is a big difference mm-hmm. on terms of your body and how you you, right. you function. Um, you also are there, I know OTs, like say, for example, in the trauma center, might I don't know if it's different in the states, but OT as a profession probably isn't well suited to that first. Like they're just coming in the door time. We will mainly right. sort of link in after things are stabilized, and you know people are going to mm-hmm. look like they're coming through it, and how we can support them to get out of there and either move on to the next ward or get out of the hospital kind of thing. Um, yeah. So I think we're kind of us. Uh, I guess, stepped back from that immediate trauma sort of time, uh, which would be another reason. And that's not just in trauma centers, in any sort of emergency department, whether it's severe or I, I know a lot of uh, emergency, and I'm assuming it's probably a similar situation over there, but a lot of emergency um, wards here, uh, there's heightened emotion when people come in, even if they're not, the injuries themselves aren't, uh, you know, life-threatening, the fact that sometimes people will have to sit and wait for hours to be seen or, mm-hmm. you know, they're not getting uh, as regular updates as they'd liked about their loved one who might be out the back getting looked yeah, at. Yeah, it turns into thing. like a high-stress yeah. situation for everyone involved. Exactly, and you can feel that tension when you walk into yep. one of those wards. Uh, we used to have to go in there fairly regularly in mental health, not for usually anything specific, but people in a mental health crisis would present to ED and then we would get the call, we'd go and have a chat with them. There was a special sort of mental health area that we could sit down, quiet room, have a conversation and assess people, see how they're doing and that kind of thing. So, But even even though I wasn't doing anything at all to do with, you know, the, the traumas or the accidents or anything that was else that was coming into that uh, ED, just being in there was like a... a completely different feeling a different environment you can feel that tension about everything especially if it's busy or they're understaffed or something's happened like you can feel it as soon as you walk in there and I can only imagine that to be not only I mean we see the effects more on I guess the the clients or the people that are coming in there with the injuries or family members and that sort of stuff but I feel the staff in there even though to a degree, some a lot, some a little, are often desensitized to that a little bit. Just being exposed to that for such long periods of time is going to have an impact on you. Like, I, yeah. if it doesn't, you're not human. It has to. Well, and that actually, I wanted to bring that up because I think a lot of 
your OT listeners could relate to um, something called secondary traumatic stress. So we all see traumatic things. It doesn't have to be a car accident. It might be just like somebody fell and like cracked their skull or somebody attempted suicide or whatever comes in and you're treating that patient. Even though the trauma didn't happen to you or whatever, whatever happened to them didn't happen to you, you're being exposed to it. So secondary traumatic stress syndrome is kind of like a type of PTSD. Mm. Um, and so it, it really happens. It, what they, they say that it, it has happened to a lot of famous, uh, like Florence Nightingale, they said that she had this type of PTSD from the stuff she saw when she was nursing folks in the war of Crimea. Mm. And so uh, secondary traumatic stress is something that any healthcare worker could come into contact with, especially now during COVID, because they're seeing hard things. There's stuff happening and it's just hard and it wears on you. And even though it's not happening to you, Mm. you're, you're exposed to it. And so if you, you're right, there is some level of desensitization that we all have. We're not immune to it, Mm. but there, there is a level of acceptance that we all have that bad stuff happens to good people. I I think it's almost a shock value wears off. Like when you first see something, it's like, Oh my God. But then if you see it a few times, yes, it's still disgusting. It's still gross. It's still whatever it is. It could be some sort of infection or whatever that it is. But if you've seen it a few times, you're like, okay, no, I know what to do with this. I'm, I, I know what to expect when I hear, such as such as coming in with you know say some sort of infection i know what that looks like i know what to expect i know mm-hmm. it's gonna smell like this i know it's gonna look like this i know it's gonna hurt them i know i have to do this etc i think you just get more prepared so it's it loses its shock value i guess when you f- mm-hmm. compared to when you first now, start seeing some, some of that some of that um so when you talk about burnout a lot of definitions of burnout include something called patient depersonalization. So burnout can include feelings of like negative attitudes towards towards patients and diminished feelings of productivity and not feeling good about your work accomplishments and emotional exhaustion, things like that. Um, But that patient depersonalization part where you're kind of disconnecting from the situation Mm. because you're so burnt out. So that is actually what a lot of burnout definitions include. And so if anyone out there is listening to this and you're feeling any of those things, that is burnout Mm. and maybe a reevaluation of your situation. Time for a check-in. But there there are also other things like if you heard of like compassion fatigue, you've heard that. Okay. Very so, familiar with that. Yeah. So that's not, it's not burnout. It's just like, you're just tired. <laughs> like you just, you ran out of steam and it causes, it also causes like a disconnection, but it, it isn't as uh, what we worry about with burnout in particular is burnout has been shown to affect patient mortality. Mm-hmm. So if you are working with patients and you're burning out, it could, it could lead to adverse outcomes for people. And so that's why you want to address it. Mm. And 
yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the stat, but it makes sense if you don't. Uh, similar to, you know, if you're desensitized to anything, then you're not going to take it as seriously as it might need to be. And if you're desensitized to the fact that, okay, this injury is actually a human being, then you're not going <laughs> to yeah, treat yeah. them. You're not going to treat them as a human being. And that's when stuff gets missed or stuff gets forgotten or stuff gets ignored. Uh, and that's when mistakes happen. Like, you, it's uh, part of it, I think. Uh, you know, I guess a westernized health system, which we both fit into, uh, is the way that that health system is designed. I think that the health system isn't designed – it wasn't designed for the level of things that we're actually seeing come through that health system now. It was designed you know, however many hundreds of years ago, 100, 200 years ago, whatever, when – you know, one, people didn't live as long and they didn't see the variety of things. They didn't see, you know, gunshot wounds and car accidents and all those sorts of things that you were describing before. Right. So the health system isn't designed to support the workers like as a whole, isn't designed to support the people that are actually supporting those that need help. Like it's not designed for the workers. It's designed to try and I guess mitigate symptoms which is pretty much all it is at the moment which yeah, is why put out fires exactly which is why I yeah. think uh and it seems to be like the whole I guess purpose of your podcast is if the system isn't going to help us look after us then, you know we can't just ignore it we have to look after us so we have to find yeah. ways to look after ourselves look after each other etc that is a huge part of what we do at Dose of Support. And um, to go back to that that story I was telling about that time I did CPR and there were guts going everywhere. Um, <laughs> so that patient passed and um, it was one of those situations where like we did everything we could and her parents were right there as she died and as we were working on her. And, you know, screaming, sobbing in the background. And um, what sucks about that is, you know, we obviously, the, the parents went in and had their time with, with her. And the nurse who was the primary nurse stayed with the patient. I was just part of the team. So I'm part of the responding team. I had to go back and take care of my two critically ill patients. Like it was nothing. I had to flip on a dime, go back to these people that are on ventilators, life-saving drugs. If that IV bag runs dry, their blood pressure drops and they die. Like that's the pressure I was working under, but I had just been through this entirely traumatic thing. Mm. And there is nothing, there is nothing for staff there. Like, let me say it louder for the administrators in the back. There is nothing that helps healthcare workers get through shit like that. And we're just expected to pick back up and move on. And I get that some people have the constitution to do that, but after years of doing it, it affected me more than, more than, I don't know, maybe I, I'm, I am a more sensitive person, but like you cannot do that over and over and not deal with it. And I tried to deal with it in therapy and I tried to take medication and it, it wasn't enough. And that's, that is how the PTSD formed in me. I had, 
I had the symptoms of burnout and I had compassion fatigue and I definitely could see some secondary traumatic stress, but, um, other situations happened in my life that really bumped it all the way into PTSD. And I think that's one of the things too, uh, that people need to take into account is just because, uh, like a lot of this stuff, burnout, PTSD, anxiety, stress, all of that stuff isn't just from work. It's compounded. So like yeah. just because you go to work and, you know, you're trained to be able to deal with these highly stressful situations and, for example, like 90% of the time might be no issue. You can deal with it, process it, no worries. You can, can keep doing your work. You've got enough coping mechanisms, etc. But every now and then there's going to be situations where, you know, yes, it might be a really rough day at work, which normally you could manage, you could cope with, but it just happened that at that day, on that day, something else has happened at home as well. So it's then that sort of stuff, those little things, almost like a perfect storm where things sort of, a perfect shit storm maybe, where <laughs> things come together that just tip it over the edge of what you could normally manage quite easily uh, or what you consider you could manage quite easily to just tip you over the edge to that point of, you know, breakdown, meltdown, whatever, however your personality reacts to whatever it is. Um, but it's it's those things that you generally you can't see coming. And I think that's part of the issue is why generally things like that will have a bigger impact if you can't see them coming because it's usually that, oh, I wasn't ready, I wasn't prepared. Um, but I, I don't know, like you said, I don't know if there's any way we can uh, not prevent it, but I guess put some proactive strategies in place to deal with those days or whether we are still stuck with what we've got now, which is reactive and trying to not completely fall apart but put the pieces back together after each time that happens because it's going to happen. Life doesn't stop when you're at work. Life is life is stressful on its own, let alone yeah. everything that we add to it by doing the work that we do. So I think there's an expectation among at least the American healthcare workforce that like you have to fix yourself, you have to manage yourself. And of course there is that. Like, of course you have to have personal responsibility for your own mental health. But when you are so deep, dark into that place, mm. um, you you can't do it alone. And so when I say that there is nothing, I, I really felt like that. And I, I know some of your listeners might be like, I've never felt like that. So I just want to like, throw some data at you for a second because I, I came prepared. I know you um, <laughs> so if there's any physicians miss, uh, that are that are listening, 42% of physicians in a really large meta-analysis reported symptoms of burnout. Um, and in the OT world, I, I read a study out of Ontario that showed um, about 35% of OTs that were practicing had emotional exhaustion. So that's just like one symptom, but 43% had like just straight up cynicism. <laughs> and, and then other, other data shows that people that even have a couple of these symptoms, they're just like less productive. So like then, so then you're behind on your work and then you get more stressed out because you just can't function as well 
as you would. So, and it's as high as like 43% of nurses in America. So there's just like, it is really prevalent, even if you're listening and you're like, that's never happened to me, or I've never seen stuff that that's that bad, but maybe like, maybe you've had some of these feelings before, or you can relate a little bit. I think it's, I like to, I think the one point that I really want people to, to get at is it's not one incident that does mm-hmm. this to someone. It's right. an accumulation of, uh, you know, weeks, months. It could be a day, but it's an accumulation of things. Like if you've ever had one of those days that, you know, you just shouldn't have got out of bed, you know, everything's going wrong. And if you actually sit and think about what's actually gone wrong in that day, I guarantee most of the things are just little things. But it's the fact that 15 little things went wrong consecutively yeah. that day is what puts you in that mindset of, oh, stuff this day, like this is ridiculous, like why can't anything go right? It's just- Can you speak to like what is the – in the OT world, so mm. in the nursing world, it's like work, 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 pull double shifts, work, 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 work. Like, it, I think that's an America thing too, where like we just like work ourselves to death um, and we don't take our PTO and it, like we just, we literally are plugged in and working and um, there isn't a whole lot of like personal time because you should be working. <laughs> And so what's the culture in the OT world? Um, I, it's hard to say. I think it would be different in different practice areas. Sure. Um, I, I think for the most part, OTs are pretty good at trying to keep a bit of balance for the most part. Um, and I think mainly because the way a lot of the models and stuff that OTs use to practice – often breaks because obviously we're looking at the activities that people do all the time, but it breaks it down into things like leisure and rest. Like they're things that we look at with our clients. So it's kind of like front Mm -hmm. of mind. Like that's part of our job is to look at those things. So I think for – it's kind of a blessing, I guess, because that stuff remains front of mind. Like um, as you said, like we spoke earlier and when I was sort of telling my story – once I'd sort of recognized an issue, I knew what to do because I'd broken that stuff down a thousand mm-hmm. times before in my career. Like I've, I knew that I, yes, okay, work's important, but I also need to have some leisure activities. I also need to make sure that my rest is being effective. Uh, you know, I need to have this sort of balance of all these different things uh, in order to maintain my well being. So I, I think, in a way, OTs are, in my experience anyway, with the OTs that I know, um, are usually pretty good. I'm not saying it's perfect. I mean, I'm a perfect example of not being perfect. Uh, but I think the the benefit of the profession looking at what it looks at is it kind of has a, a positive impact on us as a, uh, people who are working within that profession as well, which is good. Yeah, yeah. I, so- think, I do think nurses, though, are... Uh, possibly more affected by things like compassion fatigue because a lot of your models are care models. Like they're designed that way. Like I'm pretty sure you've got models that are actually called, like they've got care in the name. I'm sure I've seen that somewhere. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of help or I guess the way that we practice is 
you are the patient's advocate. It's all about the patient. And we use um, an acronym called ADPI. So assess, diagnose. (laughs) Anyway, so we evaluate the patient, et cetera, interventions. Like, so it's always all about the patient and there's never this like disconnect and take a lunch break. Like they like nurses skip their breaks. It's like common knowledge that nurses don't take a bathroom break. And so like, we're already in this culture of like work yourself to death in America. And then even when you're on duty, like you literally can't take a fucking lunch break. Like, and it's, it's wrong. Like, first of all, for the people in the back, that's not okay. Mm. Like still, I'm still over here. Like if you have to pee, like, go I, pee. <laughs> I was, I was literally working in that and saying it was okay. And like a lot of people still are because that's the culture that we allow, but what we allow is what will continue. Yeah. And and so, I think that's it. A lot of people go with it. And I, I do see that probably on a much smaller scale within IT. A lot of people, uh, particularly our new grads will go along with things just because they don't know any different. So yeah. like if yeah. you come out of nursing school, you start your first job and the culture that you're walking into is don't leave the floor for any reason. I don't care if you need to go to the bathroom, hold it because you need to get this yeah. work done, then that's what you're going to do whether you like it or not. Right. Generally people are like, especially like their first jobs and that kind of stuff, they just want to do a good job. No, no one goes into a right. health profession because they, you know, don't give a shit about other people. Like we go in there because we want to help people. And yeah. when you first hit the floor, it's kind of like when you go on placement when you're at uni. Like you're there, you'll do whatever your supervisor says because they're the ones you need to impress. Like you want to make a good impression when you first start working. Like you want to mm-hmm. do what they're doing and do it well and learn off them and whatever else, whether it's good, bad, ugly, or otherwise. And quite often it's just that you just don't know any different when you first start mm-hmm. out. And then by the time that you work it out, sometimes you're already indoctrinated into that culture yourself and perpetuating yep. it to the next set of graduates, the next wave of nurses or, or OTs or whoever it is. Right. So, it just becomes this whole – It's a culture. I, I mean, it, You've said that you've been in in academia and Mm -hmm. I also taught in academia for about five years and something that I really pushed at the students when I was teaching was, was self-care and how how to break that. You got to break the culture before they even get out of school. You got to like teach them a different way before they even get out of school. And, um, and it's from my experience that I, that I decided to approach teaching that way. Um, and so I did that. That was just like a fun side gig. I was actually still working as a nurse yeah. um, while I was going through school. And I, I, at one point I had like three jobs, like, because, you know, you work you, yourself. You don't like crazy spare time. here. Right. Like <laughs> this is, this was before I was a mom and had like literally other things to fill my time. Um, but I, and I had, there's tons of student loan debt here in the States. Like there's tons of other stressors that had weighing me down too. So, um, yeah. It's. You're just shaking your head. You're just like, no. No, I just. Like, it, yeah, I it was, must suck to be American. I, know, I would not think something like that, you, surely. You, <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't think it sucks to be American, but sometimes I'm glad that I'm Australian. Yep. I'll frame, yep. It, I'll frame it that way. Really, right now, we should all be like, you know, New Zealand's looking pretty good. Yeah, except the border like, players. They won't let anyone in. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, like, I've never been like, oh, New Zealand. But, like, I think they have maybe like 100 coronavirus cases. And when when they had that mass shooting, like, pff, bam, assault rifles banned in a week. Like, they were just on it. And I'm like... What the fuck is America doing? Yeah, we did nothing. That. We did that years ago, right? Right? Can't like ninety two like or something. So basically, everyone else has their <laughs> shit together, except for Trump. <laughs> and we're back here. <laughs> and we're back. And we're back to Trump and his tiny little hands. And you know what tiny hands means? Little gloves. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And apparently orange hair. What was I? Oh, just. There was, there was something you said the other day that I was going to ask, but I don't really know how to weave that in. Actually, we'll like, go. We'll continue along this track, actually, because I want to know what. I guess we've we've very concretely identified that there's an issue, but what can your average practitioner do about it? At the moment. Oh, I have that for you too. <laughs> I thought you might. So, yeah. So, um, obviously on Dose of Support, we talk about self-care and it really is in a really informal way. I ask guests, what do you do? What do you do to take care of yourself? And some people have a really good regimen and other people are like, I talked to my mom. <laughs> you know, so it's, there's everyone is using different methods. And I, I always find that interesting that for some people, they just like make sure that they get seven hours of sleep. And for other people, they literally just pack lunches. That is all they need to do in their life. And they feel great. Um, and I'm over here like, God, I could do all the things and I still need a month vacation. Um, and so I think it is personality based, but there is some research that shows that work environment plays a huge role in burnout. Um, so if you are working in a, in an environment that is wearing you down and Brock, you've talked about this. Um, if it's the environment, the people you're working with, the system you're working in, if that environment is not providing ways to empower you. So what the research really has shown is that when employees feel empowered so if they feel like they have tools at their disposal, they have resources to reach out to, you know, they're not alone. They feel empowered and powerful in their role that it reduces burnout. So maybe it's, it would require a unit culture shift or a systemic change, or maybe you need to change your job. Like maybe that's just what you need to do is get in a completely different environment. So that's what... That's one thing that research is showing that environment plays a huge factor. So that's work environment. Another thing that um, a lot of people have, the research is ongoing in this area, but mindfulness training or mindfulness-based stress reduction training, MBSR, there is some data showing that that is helpful but nurses in particular that I, the literature I've read, that data shows that like 
people have to like attend a class and get training and be on a program in order for them to see a good effect in, in their burnout, in their compassion fatigue. So I just described to you like this terrible like culture we have here of work, 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 don't take a lunch break. So like, how are you going to get people to take a class on their off time that they're not getting paid for, that they may have to pay for the class? I mean, so there really needs to be incentives on employer ends to take care of their workforce. And I, I feel like that's definitely lacking here. A lot of employers have, um, like, what is, what is mine called? I think it's just called the employee Employee wellness program. Yeah. Yeah, An employee assistance program. Um, But it's not readily available to workers. Right. Right. It's just not made easy. Like really the, the resource needs to go to the employee. Mm. Um, So these programs really need to be more accessible. And I'm, I'm talking from a very privileged place. I'm a white lady in America that grew up in a middle-class neighborhood. I had excellent education. Like I know what to do, but I still think that it's not very accessible. <laughs> so if, if I'm coming, coming from this place of privilege, I can't imagine what someone who is struggling, how they're going to access these resources. So even though MBSR or this mindfulness training has shown some really good success with treating burnout, um, I don't know how we're going to deploy it in practice. So if anyone out out there is listening and they've taken a course, if they have a free course, send it my way. I'm, I'm all about getting that stuff out there to people. Um, there's, there's some really good YouTube courses that I just short like yoga mindfulness type videos that I like but of course there isn't like research to back those up there there isn't like a class or you know to back that up um and then I would also go see a therapist to target your particular signs and symptoms so Brock you and I talked earlier like the depression you know, not wanting to get out of bed. So that's, that's like that low energy. Like Mm. I just don't have it in me. That's a symptom. Mm. Um, and like I, I had night terrors. So that's an example of one, a, a part of my PTSD is flashbacks and night terrors. So I would be doing CPR or I would be dissociating, um, during, during the day, um, like daydreaming almost mm-hmm. that I was back that I was back in that moment um, with blood going everywhere. I've seen brains on a wall, like I, like the things that you relive. Right. Um, and so I actually got hypnotized because I was, I was desperate to mm. find something that would help. And so I went to therapy I tried to get on these medications. I've tried yoga and mindfulness and, you know, you really have to find the right medication too. Like you have to have one that treats your symptoms. Um, but I also was like, there are other options out there. And I did try hypnotherapy, I think twice in total. And I found it relaxing in the moment Mm -hmm. I have worked with acupuncturists. Um, but again, there's not a lot of research to back that up. Mm -hmm. So, but what I would what I would say is that when people identify what they're experiencing, like a symptom, then 
go down the rabbit hole of how to treat that symptom, you know, via medical care or other alternative care, because there are things out there that can manage those symptoms. Yeah, it's interesting what you were saying before about changing the environment. That's a very OT sort of thing. So a lot of our well, a lot of our models look at the interaction between the person. So you know their personal attributes, their skill sets, their capacities, their resilience, that kind of thing, the occupation or the activity itself, and the environment. So those three things are like this like triangle that we look at how each of those looks interacts. Um, and I always when I when I tell my story, I usually explain if if I'm talking to OTs, try to explain it in an OT way in that. Like I, when I was in that moment, like I tapped out everything that I could with regards to trying to increase my resilience, deal with my stress, uh, all of that sort of personal stuff. I tried to modify the way I did things, so the actual occupation itself. And when neither of those was sort of having the desired effect, the only thing left to do was to change the environment. So I did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's that's where I found the relief. And I'm now in academia, I changed my job. Um, but looking at those three, like that's obviously not something that every single person is going to have to do every time. You might be able to just... Uh, find a, a way to either upskill, uh, increase your resilience, increase your coping mechanisms, uh, even just sometimes learning about what's actually happening to you can be a, a way of dealing with it better. Um, yeah. And that might be fine. That might be what you need to to deal with it. It might be a way of uh, – I know a lot of people uh, – I've spoken to a lot of people who work in like private practice and a lot of their work-related stresses come from I've just got so much to do. So changing how they do things helps manage that. So it might be putting in different processes and making sort of, I guess, uh, a lot maybe outsourcing some of that stuff so that they're not having to deal with it. Like changing how they actually do that might be what they need to deal with that overall, their, their occupational performance overall. And then again, like me, for some people it's going to come down to changing the environment and whether that's changing jobs or moving cities or, you know, even just flipping your desk around in your office so you face the other wall, whatever <laughs> it is, uh, it's one of those, whatever issue it is, I can guarantee that by adjusting one of those three things, you're going to find an outcome. It's just a matter of either getting assessed by someone who knows that kind of stuff, if, if that's not you if you don't know it or just trying things try a bit of everything it's not gonna well hopefully it's not gonna kill you but you know who knows you might find that the other thing as a therapist is disclaimer we are not yeah, doling out not medical... healthcare device yeah. or device advice yeah i'm tired um so um i wanted to touch back on what you said about resilience mm-hmm. so like when you define resilience what is it it's like your ability to overcome your ability to bounce back or get through something and persevere. Um, And how do you teach that to someone? And so there is actually, if anyone wants to look up research by Meredith Mealer, M-E-A-L-E-R, she does a lot of resilience training research. So like, I'm going to take these X amount of healthcare workers and teach them resilience. And then I'm going to measure their burnout rate afterwards. And there is some research she has done that has shown if you teach someone how to be resilient, 
they don't burn out or they, they do so much better. They're more productive, et cetera. They live a better life. And isn't that what this is all about? Like, isn't that what we're talking about here? I want to give better care to my patients. I want to enjoy my life, my work. I want to have a good balance and I want to be happy. Mm. And when you look at that, if that's your goal and you're not getting there, what's in your way? Um, and so I, I don't have a particular moment where I realized what was happening to me because I had been trying so hard for so long to get better and feel better. And, um, I did change. I moved back across the country, back home. I worked in a different ICU. Um, and then something happened in my personal life that, um, the, the, the PTSD had, had gotten a lot better. I, I was able to get off of medication um, and I was still working in the ICU. Mm. Um, and so I felt like I was really doing well and um, something happened that really night terrors. Uh, my husband would wake me up. He, he would say, you were screaming in your, like screaming in your sleep. Um, and I, I would have flashbacks on the job. Um, and it, it became, it became a point where like, I did not feel safe doing my work. Um, and I was, I, I was already in school at this point. I, because after all the stuff you see in the ICU, that's preventable. Like I was saying earlier, there's mm. so much stuff you see in the hospital and I'm sure your OT folks can can relate to this. You can prevent so much. Mm. And so I was starting school to be a primary care provider at that time because I thought I want to get in front of this. Um, but then this tragedy in my personal life happened and, um, I started to feel like I couldn't, I couldn't work at, in the ICU anymore because the symptoms came back and got really bad. And, um, and this time I felt better equipped to reach out for help and to get help. Um, and here I am, gosh, it's been, it's been four years since that tragedy. And here I am working on this podcast and on this self-care journey with everyone, with any of my listeners. Um, and now with your listeners, I'm, I'm on the journey too. I'm figuring out self-care in healthcare and how I can, how I can find strategies to cope when things get tough. And so um, check out dose of support if you're looking for that too. And I think that's, and I'm going to call you out now because Prior to recording this, you said that you thought that this podcast was rather clinical. <laughs> and I said, like, no, it's not clinical. It's just two people having a conversation. And I think that's what you've just said there is exactly how I see this particular podcast as well in that I don't know everything. I don't know anything in the grand scheme of things, but yeah. I like having conversations with people and I like learning off those people and I love people that are passionate and interesting and that kind of thing. And then I also get the joy of just sharing those conversations with mm -hmm. you know, whoever wants to listen, really. Um, so I think that for me, 
now, and I, I, we spoke about this earlier as well, for me, one of my coping things is having a creative outlet. And for the longest time, yeah. pretty much since I started it, this podcast has been one of those things that has sort of fed into that creative outlet. And yes, now I've got a couple other things that I'm also doing that uh, also sort of tapping that creative need. But this podcast, is it's been a consistent over the last, what's it been now? What is it, September? So it's been almost two and a half years. Um, yeah, this is kind of like group therapy. And I, I tell my guests that sometimes it's, it's like the actual act of sharing your story, like I've shared today, sometimes that's what's therapeutic. Yeah. And so when I have someone on and they share their story and they share their experience, you know, it's, it's like you're validated, you've been seen. Mm. And so I, I see you and, and now people hopefully hear this and they can relate to it. And, and even like, I, I'm so tired of the facade that I have to put on. I'm so tired of having to be everything for everybody when like I'm human and I, you know, I've had some hard things and we all do. And I think it's not talking about it that creates part of this problem as well. So normalizing that people go through stuff and they need help. That's important. I think reaching out uh, or how to or where to reach out is sometimes one of the biggest issues that people have. Because I think once, uh, like I've had experience with people who uh, have sort of opened up to me or come to me uh, eventually, but it's like once that sort of floodgates open, then they're fine. Like it just comes pouring out of them. But Mm -hmm. uh, for a long time, they're resistant, whether it's due to like in your instance, like the culture of nursing where you were working was very much against you sort of showing any signs of vulnerability or for some people it's might be family pressure to similar thing like mm-hmm. don't show vulnerability it might be you know societal values like i can't not do that because what what are people going to think of me like it could be a any one of a million reasons why people don't it could be like again like we spoke about earlier it could be just the stigma of okay what if uh, i know people that won't or haven't seen a doctor who, to me, present as like classic depression, but they won't see a doctor because if they're given that diagnosis, then it's almost like Schrodinger's cat. You don't have depression until you get told that you do. I'm like, what's yeah. there, whether you give it a label or not? Like, it's just, yeah. what are you going to do about it? Are you just going to avoid it and hope it goes away? And that's that's so sad to me that people identify the problem. Um and they don't feel like there's a place to go for help. Um, and, and then you, you do get into a whole nother access issue. So here in the States, a lot of people may identify that they have a problem, but they don't have health insurance mm. or they don't have, um, they don't want to pay the copay or their yeah. deductible or whatever it is that, that is really that holds people back from receiving appropriate care all the time here. And, and that's actually part of uh, the personal tragedy that I went through is um, the person that I lost didn't get what he needed 
um, because he couldn't. Yeah. And so, so there's, there's a lot of stories like that, especially here where like, even if you know what's wrong and you want to go see somebody, you, you, the financial, the financial barrier, the insurance barrier, the cultural barrier. Um, and that's another reason why dose of support is up and running because we got to talk about it. Where can people find dose of support? So we are on. Okay, I am kind of fabulous. Okay. So you're you're just gonna. <laughs> I'm kind of. I'm just kind of a big deal. No. Um. So y'all, I launched my first episode on July first. So my account on Instagram is very new, but I am very active. So that's how I met Brock, and um, I was able to. I'm able to post all the time about my upcoming episodes and just check me out on Instagram at dose of support. I'm on Facebook also in a private group. So it's facebook.com slash groups slash dose of support. And then, um, I am like debating Twitter. So like, don't make me do another platform hashtag. I'm an elder millennial. I just can't. Um, Hey, 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 <laughs> I'm on Twitter and I think I'm older than you. Um, listen, I just don't think I can do so many platforms is what I'm saying. Like I don't have to, I've done episodes on this. You don't have to do what you're comfortable with. Stick with that and do that. Well, Uh, so that's what I'm sticking to is Facebook and Instagram. If anyone listening is like made of money, um, (laughs) congratulations to you. And if you would like to share that money, Um, I do have a Patreon page. And so when people, if you go to www.patreon.com slash dose of support, there's um, two packages there. And one is just a low $5 a month and one is a $10 a month. And um, the varying packages, you get direct access to show ideas. You get to know who the guests are ahead of time. You get to ask guests questions um you get to have a a live shout out on the pod if you so wish um so there's just there's some incentives on there so if you want to like support the show and support what i'm doing um it's not for nothing um of course all of the proceeds from that go back into the show because like I'm working on a really old computer right now. I don't have a sound booth. I don't have a production team. I pay for my website. I, you know, everything that I've got going on, which, oh, my, my website is www.doseofsupport.com. Um, so I'm doing all this alone with my own money. Um, so if anyone out there is made of money, like I said, if you're just rolling in it, help a girl out on Patreon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then if anyone out there is working in healthcare and listening to this and you want to tell your story, I, it is really important to me that I highlight underrepresented stories. And that means like mostly non-physician. Um, so, so if you're a physician and you're listening to this and you have a story, I, I am happy to listen to it. I, I just want to highlight people that are often underrepresented. Um, and so those are the stories that I, 
all stories are welcome though. And you can submit your story on my website in a couple different spots. So if you're listening to this and you're an OT and you want to share your OT story, you are so welcome. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for, for coming and having a chat. It's been fun. We've had a couple of chats today, but that's the secret and people <laughs> will find out about that later. But yeah, it's been fun. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied. You're so funny. You say 18, 18, 18, 18 is eight. 18. 18. It's 18. Okay. 18. There's a T in there. There's not a D. Yeah, like, 18. <laughs> 18. He's, he's 18. 18. 18.